welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I am glad to welcome my youngest son to our ministry team. Josh is one of the teaching pastors at Summit Church in Naples, Florida. Now take your Bibles and let's listen to God's Word together. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good morning. Uh, my name is Josh Stewart. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the awesome privilege to communicate God's Word with you today, which I'm so excited to do. We're continuing our Jesus is Better series through the book of Hebrews. We've been in the book of Hebrews all the way back in August we started, and recently we've been camping out in Hebrews chapter 11. It's known as the Hall of Faith because you see a bunch of believers, men and women, who love Jesus and who love God and place their faith in Him, and God did enormous things through them because of the faith that they had. And so we're going to continue in that series today. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 30 and 31, and very similar to last week, we're also going to jump back to Joshua chapter 6 as well. And so you've got to put your finger in your thumb in, in two different places, Hebrews chapter 11, as well as um, Joshua chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, we just encourage you to raise your hands. We have ushers who can provide Bibles for you. Uh, know that we don't do that to shame you or embarrass you in any way. We just love God's Word here at Summit Church, and we're going to dive into God's Word today, and we're going to read it, and we're going to dissect it, and we're going to process through it, and we're going to apply it to our lives, and we want God's Word in front of you as we do that today. And so if you don't have a Bible at all, feel free to take the one that we've given you and take it home with you, read it throughout the week, bring it back next week as our gift for you here at Summit. And so Hebrews chapter 11, verses 30 and 31 says this. It says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with whom those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Um, let's open up in a word of prayer before we dive deeper into that. Lord, we're so thankful for today. We're so thankful for the day that you have made that we can rejoice and be glad in it. Often things happen in our lives, O oh Lord, and we wake up every morning not rejoicing in the, the day that you've given us because what we see is the struggles and the hardships and the, the things that you're calling us to do and the things that you place in our lives. And we don't want to minimize that here today, that we know people in this room have heavy hearts and great struggles. And so we pray today, Lord, that you would minister to them, that you would love them, that you would care for them in the midst of the struggles, in the midst of the hard times, that they can cry out to you knowing that you are a God that is near, knowing, God, that you love and you're close and you care for the brokenhearted. For those in the room today, Lord, that things are going really well in their lives, we praise for the, the provision that you've given them. We praise you, Lord, for the, the life that you've blessed them with, the things that you've given them that they can rejoice in today, knowing that apart from you, none of these things are given, but they're given for your glory and for their good, and they can rejoice in the truth of that. And I pray that you would be with us today, Lord, as we examine and process through an amazing story found in your book, Lord, in your words given to us, and that you would, Holy Spirit, work within us to know that this is not a story written thousands of years ago just for us to read, to understand history. But this is a story for us to understand the greatness of our God, the personal aspect that you have, how you work in mighty ways to shape our lives and to impact the people around us. And so we pray today that you would work mightily today, that Christ, that you would be exalted above anything else, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts today would honor and glorify you above anything else. And we pray, Lord, for the other amazing churches that we have here in Naples, churches that love you, Lord, churches that are proclaiming your goodness even right now, Lord. 
We think about churches like Centerpoint. We think about First Baptist. We think about Covenant Presbyterian. We think about Faith Bible. And, and many other churches here in Naples, throughout Southwest Florida. Bless them, Lord. Do great things in and through their people, Lord, for the advancement of your kingdom. And so we come to you today, humbled before you, knowing, Lord, that you must move, that you must penetrate our hearts, and that the words Holy Spirit would, would move in a mighty way all for your glory, and all for the advancement of your church. We love you, and we praise you, and we thank you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So when I was in college, I had um, multiple opportunities. I was really blessed to be part of a a really great college ministry. And this college ministry offered mission trips um, throughout different countries all over the world. And so um, what you have to do if you go on mission trips most of the time is you have to raise support for these mission trips. And so what that means is that you're writing a bunch of letters. This was before GoFundMe, so you could just post it online and send it out through social media. You had to write letters. You had to have conversations with people. You had to cast vision of what this mission trip was going to be about, cast vision for them to be part of it, not only through prayer, but through financial giving. And so my brother and I were both going on the trip together, and so we were raising support. We were, man, we were going after it and just contacting people and contacting our local church. And so we put in the bulletin of our local church how much money that we needed. And even though I felt like we went after it really hard, we were pretty short on funds by the end of the trip. Like, I mean, really short on funds. And so it was the Sunday before we were about to go on the trip. And man, I thought there's no way that we were going to be able to raise the support that we were supposed to raise. And so after church that Sunday, I remember going up to a man. His name was August. And he was a godly man. He's from Romania. And he came up to us, and we had a relationship with him. We were talking, we had conversations, and he handed us an envelope. And, you know, people at last second will give money towards the trip, which is great. And so I thought, you know, $50, $100, that's what most people give. And so we had the conversation, and we walked away, and my brother and I then opened up the envelope, and inside of it was a check written for the exact amount that we needed to cover the cost of the trip. And I remember how blown away we were. I mean, the sacrificial gift that this man was giving I mean, he could use this for so many other things in his life, but God was pressing on his heart in that moment to give this and just the joy that overwhelmed us. I remember going back to our mission team going, you won't believe what God just did. We were short so much, but God provided by this one man who gave not only to cover my cost, but the cost of me and my brother stepping out in faith, doing something radical for God's glory, right? And for the advancement of his kingdom. And it was so amazing to see that. It was so awesome that somebody would do that for us to be able to go on this trip. And as I'm kind of processing through that story, what was so cool about that story is there's two elements that you see. Is that you see God working in the heart of this man, Augustine, to step out and do something pretty radical, to give a large amount of money to these people going on the mission trip. But then in response to that, you see how we were impacted as well by it. That my brother and I rejoice, that our brother and I celebrate, that our brother and I praise God together, saying, look how the Lord has provided. So not only was Augustine impacted in his relationship with Christ as he steps out in faith and obedience, but my brother and I will lead to worship and praise of our great God because of the gift that was given to us. And what we're going to see today is something very similar happens in the story that we're going on, the story of Joshua And by a woman by the name of Rahab. And we see that God called Joshua to do something extremely radical. Something very extreme. And by faith, Joshua does it. And not only was Joshua impacted and the people of Israel. But we see that a lady by the name of Rahab, who didn't even belong to the tribe. Who lived in the city of Jericho. Saw the greatness of the great God that we serve. Because God was working through the faith of his people. And so the big idea of the message today that we're going to talk about is this, is that God uses radical faith 
to shape our lives and to reveal himself to others. That God wants to use you, that God is calling you to do radical things, to step out in radical faith, to mold you and to shape you into the image of his son. He's doing it in order to advance his kingdom. He's doing it for his glory. But not only that, our God is so creative. Our God is so magnificent. Our God is so wise. Our God is so loving that he also allows our radical faith to be used to impact the people around us. And so God uses it in your life, but he also uses it in the lives of other people. And so what I kind of want to focus on today is not only how God might be calling you to step out in radical faith, but to also consider what God could be doing through your children. What he could be doing through your family members, what he could be doing through your coworkers, what he could be doing through your neighbors and the people around you as they see you step out in radical faith for God's glory and how that can impact their lives as well. And so what we mean today, I'm going to use the word radical faith a lot. And what I want to mean by that is that we step out and do something that God has called us to do. And when you step out in radical faith, it doesn't mean that you ever do anything that is against what God's word says. Right? If, God's, if you feel like God's calling you to step out in radical faith, to lie to your boss so you can get a promotion, like God's not calling you to do that. He will never call you to do that. He will never call you to step out in radical faith and to do something that is sinful, right? Like he would never call us to do that. Instead, he calls us to step out and do radical things that line up with his word and that line up with his character. So God might be calling you to open up your home to somebody else, even though you feel like your home is completely full. God might be calling you to step out and to forgive somebody who has really harmed you. And even though you don't feel like they deserve it because of the emotional damage that they've given you, that you step out and forgive them. Maybe God calls you in radical faith to step out and actually go to someone and ask for their forgiveness because you sinned against them maybe years ago. Or maybe God calls you to step out in radical faith to give generously towards missions, towards the local church in the same way that Augustine did. And so as we process through today, see how God might be pressing on your heart, even in this room, to step out in radical faith, to mold you and to shape you into the image of his son, to bring great glory to himself. But not only that, but to impact the lives of the people around you because they see the greatness and the glory and the loving kindness of our God when we step out in radical faith as believers. And so what we're going to do today, Joshua chapter 6 the story of Joshua is how we're going to examine this and process through this. And so I got to catch us up because last week when I was talking, we were talking about Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. Well, that was many moons ago compared to the story that we're about to talk about. And so let me give you a quick recap leading up to the book of Joshua and where, why we where, why we where we are, why we are where we are today in Joshua chapter 6. So Moses crosses the Red Sea. We see the amazing story of how God provided for them and how God fought for them. And then God calls the people of Israel to go to the edge of the promised land. This is the promised land that he gave to Abraham. Remember, we talked about that many weeks ago as well. And they're going to the edge of the promised land. This is with um, Moses leading the people. And and God tells Moses to send 12 spies into the land to scope out the land. And their job wasn't to go into the land to come back to say whether they should go in or not. God said he was going to give them the land. Their job was to go in and strategize of how they could take the land most effectively. And so the 12 spies go out and then they return. And 10 of the spies say that we don't need to go into the land. The people are huge. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. And Joshua and Caleb say, no, no, we can do it. God has given them to us. But the people sided with the 10 spies. And because of their disobedience, God says, this generation will never see the promised land. 
In fact, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until this generation, the consequences of your sinfulness, the consequences of your disobedience is you will not enter the land, but I'll allow your children and your grandchildren to enter the land. And so Moses, with the people, goes around the wilderness for 40 years, and even Moses commits a sin that he doesn't able to enter the promised land. And so after 40 years, the generation has passed, and Joshua, by the, by the way, best name in the Bible, hands down, Joshua is given the opportunity to lead the people into the promised land. And so he goes to the edge of the promised land once again, same situation. But instead of him sending out 12 spies, Joshua just sends two out. And he says, go and scope the land, especially Jericho. Because Jericho was going to be the big battle, the first battle that they're going to have to experience. It was a a large, fortified city known for their walls, known for their strength. Back then, walls determined strength. And Jericho had big, enormous walls that they didn't think anybody could penetrate. And so he's going to scope out the land, especially go into Jericho. So the spies go into Jericho and they meet a prostitute by the name of Rahab. And Rahab is there. She actually takes them in and she hides them because the people of Jericho, the army knew that they were there. They found out. So they're searching around to find these two spies in Rahab, right? She rejected her own city and instead said, I will hide you on my roof. Because she said she believes that the God of heaven and earth is the God of the Israel people. And so she hides them on the roof. The people leave. They get off the roof. They head back to Israel, but they tell her that her family will be spared because of what she has done. And so she's rejoicing in that. She's celebrating that. They go back. The people, I mean, the two spies go back and they report Jericho. And so God says, all right, let's do this. Let's take the people. Let's take the army. 40,000 warriors were ready to go and to take down Jericho. And as they're heading that way, there's a big Jordan River. Remember how God parted the Red Sea? He also takes the water downs on the Jordan River. So they cross the Jordan River in the same type of way of this power of God is being displayed. And they come up to the city of Jericho. In Joshua chapter 6. I mean, can you imagine what the people had been going through? For years, they lived in the wilderness. For years, because of the consequences of their parents, they had to sit back and wait and wait to enter the promised land. The land flowing with milk and honey that God had given them. I mean, imagine the excitement. Imagine the anticipation. Imagine saying, we aren't going to make the same mistakes our parents do. We're going to go. We're going to fight. This is going to be awesome. And they go to the edge of the promised land and God tells, or the edge of Jericho, and God tells them to do something completely radical. Right? They, they're ready to fight, right? They're probably sharpening their swords, sharpening their spears. I mean, they're ready to get it on with Jericho. Like, let's do this. But then God says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I've got different plans. And God tells them to do something radical. And what we're going to see today is that God calls us in our lives to do something radical. There's truths that we can hold on to. It might seem like it's counterproductive. It might seem like it doesn't make a lot of sense. It might seem like it's not what's best for us. But when God calls us to take these steps of faith, that we can hold on to the anchor of these truths as we step out, seen here in the story of Joshua. And so the first thing we see here is that our faith is never counterproductive. Like what Joshua chapter 6 verses 1 and 5 says, right? So they're ready to go in, 40,000 warriors ready to go. And let's see what happens here. Look at the first five verses of Joshua chapter 6. It says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went in and none, none went out and none came in. Right? The people of Jericho have locked themselves in. They were trusting in the size of their walls. They're trusting in this fortified city. 
Verse 2, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its kings and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram horns before the ark. On the seventh day you should march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before them. What a radical thing for God telling them to do. These men are ready for war. And God says, this is my strategy. You ready for it? I want you to march around the city once for six days. And then on the seventh day, ready for this? I want you to march around seven times. And then I want you to blow trumpets and I want you to shout. And the walls are going to come tumbling down. Like that sounds from our own logic, like insane, right? Like just in case you don't know how like structure works, if you walked around this high school once a day for six days, and then you on the sixth, seventh day, you walked around seven times and you shouted and blowed trumpets and played flutes and everything. I'm very confident that the walls of this, even this school will not fall down because logically that's not how walls fall down. Walls fall down when you put boulders into them, right? Like walls fall down when you attack, when you climb over them, right? Like these are how walls are penetrated, not by people walking around. But we see what God did is that God called Joshua to do something radical. And that might even seem counterproductive to him in that moment. And often in our own lives, God calls us to do stuff radical. And we think in our own logic, we go, this kind of seems a little counterproductive, right? Often we approach a situation, we say, how is this situation going to benefit me? Like, what's, what's the greatest benefit to me in this situation? Like, how am I going to get out on top? I mean, Joshua could have easily said to God, listen, God, this is my first big battle as a leader here. Like, can't I be the one that kills their biggest warrior? Like, can't I be the one that shows, throws a spear into somebody's face? Like, can't I be the guy that seems pretty big and awesome here? But instead, he trusted God, even though it might have seemed counterproductive. Marching around cities doesn't seem like the best approach to take down your enemy, does it? But we see here is that our faith is never counterproductive. And often God calls us to do things that in our own mind, and our own logic, doesn't seem like for our best benefit. It seems counterproductive to, to make it our lives better, doesn't it? Look at some of the things that Jesus tells us to do that often from an initial glance might seem a little pro- pro- counterproductive to being a benefit to you. Look what it says in Matthew 16, 25. It says, whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Jesus is talking about us giving over, not physically dying here, but what he's talking about is us giving over our goals and our ambitions to him. He said, I'm going to lose what I want to do because I can gain what you want me to do. But often we think about, no, like I know my goals. I know how I can get ahead in life. I know how I can benefit. I know what's best for my family. Should I be the one that takes my life into my hands? Like, it seems a little counterproductive for me to give it all away. I know my goals. I know my ambitions. Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And Jesus says to be in his kingdom, greatness comes when you serve, not when you rule over people with power. And it's easy to look around and say, I see the the people who have the most money. I see the people who have the most position. I see the people who have the most power. They seem to be the ones that rule over people. Are you telling me I need to serve? I need to serve my coworkers? No, I need to show them who's boss, right? Like that's for my benefit. 
What about even Matthew 5, 44, Matthew 5, 39, where Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and turn the other cheek when attacked. Like, how does that benefit me? Because my enemies, I, I need to love them? No, do you see what they did to me? Do you see how they wounded me? you see what they did to my reputation? you see what they say about me behind my back? I don't, I don't need to love them. How does that benefit me? I need to get revenge. I want them to hurt the same way that I've hurt. And I want them to feel what I have felt. That's what they need. They don't need to be loved in this situation. How does that benefit me? Or even Acts 20, 35 is better to give than to receive. I don't know, Christmas morning seems pretty good when I'm receiving all the gifts, right? Like it seems pretty good when things are given to me versus giving them away. How does that benefit me? You're telling me receiving $6 billion, like that's better than giving away $6 billion, right? Like how in the world does this add up? Better to give than, I mean, to receive. How does that benefit me? How does that benefit my family? How does that benefit my career? How does that benefit my 401k? And we understand from our worldly perspective, when the, when the center of the universe revolves around us and our benefit, then these things will seem ludicrous to us. But when we understand that the kingdom that is the greatest kingdom is God's kingdom, and when we understand that we're citizens of his kingdom, when we place our trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and we also realize that how we can impact the people around us with our lives then this perspective brings great glory to God and it's for our good more than we could do anything for ourselves. Think about it. Even in perspective of God's kingdom and using this for his glory to reveal himself to other people. Right? Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If we believe that God's design for our life is better than our own, if we believe that he is the ruler, that he's the savior and that he's the king, Like if we truly believe that, then we're able to embrace the fact that losing my life, doing what Christ wants me to do versus what I want to do is a benefit to me for his glory and my good, right? The greatest among you shall be your servant. What impact does it have on the people who are below you, right? Below you in your job, your children, the people that that see, they, they think of them as less than you, that you are serving them versus trying to command them and have an authority over them. Because you're serving them in the same way that Christ has served you through dying on the cross for your sins. And not only are you being molded into the image of Christ when we serve people, when we lay down our own pride, when we lay down our own ambitions, but you're revealing to the people that you serve, this is the type of God that I serve. That my God had complete authority, but he came to seek and to save those who are lost. He came to serve me. So I'm going to serve you in the same way to reflect the great God. It's not counterproductive to do that. Loving your enemies and turning the other cheek. Man, praise God Jesus loved his enemies. Because you and I would be lost for all of eternity if Jesus didn't love his enemies. And on the cross, he prayed for those who were persecuting him. Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so we love those who don't deserve to be loved. We forgive those who don't deserve our forgiveness. We are displaying the same type of love and forgiveness that our Savior did to us. And in the moment, he's revealing himself to the people that we're loving. But not only that, but he's molding us and shaping us into the image of his son. And it's better to give than to receive. And we pour out our time, our talents, our resources, all that we have for God's kingdom. Say, it is better to give towards you. It's better to serve you. It's better to care for you. I'm going to give these things that so often in our culture we cling to tightly. Saying, it's better to give because Christ gave his all for me. And let me display to you that all that I am belongs to God. And all that I am is his. See the great God. 
And when our lives reflect the lies of our Savior, he shapes us and molds us. He brings glory to himself. But the people around you see the impact that this has on their lives. What God do they serve? What person would treat me this way when I treat them the way that I've treated them? A person that serves a great and loving and saving God who it is. And so the things in your life that God calls you to do is never counterproductive for his glory, for your good, but it's for the advancement of his kingdom, the edification of his church, to lead people into deeper understanding of who he is. And so it might seem like crazy to walk around the walls of Jericho, so counterproductive. But in the midst of that, God was revealing to Joshua, I want to show you in the same way that I showed Moses, that I am the one that fights your battles, that I am the one that is strong on your behalf, that you need me, that you're dependent on me, and I'm going to reveal to you the great God that you serve. And you and the people of Israel will see, I am Yahweh. And they will see that I'm the one that will give all the glory. And God deserves all the glory and all the praise. In our own mind, we might think something's counterproductive. But in the mind of God, it's extremely beneficial. And he's using it to reveal his glory, to reveal his strength, and to shape us into the image of his son. So we'll see it, and the whole world will see it. Jim Elliott was a missionary. Some of you have heard his name back in the 1950s. And Jim Elliott had an extreme call to go to an unreached people group in Ecuador and to present the gospel to them. And so he heads down to Ecuador to study the Spanish language, to study the language of the people. And he begins to build relationships with this tribe. This was a hostile tribe. This was a very excluded tribe. They're indigenous to the country. So he's going and him and other missionaries are building this relationship with the people. They're like giving packages to them. They're offering plane rides to them. Like they're just slowly building this relationship with the people. And one day, Jim Elliott and four other men were going to talk to the people. One of the men in the tribe said he wanted a plane ride. And so they believed him because they'd given him out before. But it actually was a trap. And the indigenous people felt threatened by Jim Elliott and his group. And as they were walking in the water, they attacked and threw spears. And all five men died that day. Jim Elliott was 28 years old killed with a spear by the indigenous people he was trying to reach with the gospel. And from the perspective of our own, right, you could easily say, God, that seems very counterproductive. Like you give a man to come out and leap out in faith, to do something radical for the gospel, to go down to Ecuador, to build a relationship, to learn about the people so he can share the gospel with them, and you kill him? Like how productive is that? to your mission. How productive is that to the life of Jim Elliot? And I don't know all the things that God was doing in the life of Jim Elliot, but I tell you the impact that I've seen that has had since he's passed away in the 1950s is that there's been books written about him. There's been articles written about him. There's been docker enemies about him. There's been a musical about him. As crazy as that sounds, all showing the life and the faith in the radicalness of Jim Elliot, because he served an amazing, wonderful God. And God has used the death of Jim Elliot to impact thousands, if not millions, of people with the good news of Jesus Christ all over the world, including myself. The death of Jim Elliot was not counterproductive. The je- death of Jim Elliot radically was used to impact people all over the world with the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. And don't worry, right? Jim Elliot's in heaven, right? He's with eternity with his king. He's doing good. 
And the people on this earth get to see the radical faith. And God has used that. Our great God is so gracious and kind that he uses our radical faith to influence the people from all over the world. What an amazing God that we serve. And Elizabeth Elliot, who is the widow of Jim Elliot, she says this. She says, the will of God is never exactly what you expect it to be. It may seem to be much worse. But in the end, it's going to be a lot better, a lot better and a lot bigger. That God is calling us in this room to step out in radical faith that seems counterproductive, that doesn't make sense. But God wants to use your radical faith to do something so much bigger and so much better than you could ever possibly imagine. That's how great our God is. And so how in the room today is our great God calling you to step out and do something radical? How is God calling you to step out in faith, to leap out and do something that seems, Josh, just seems ridiculous in my mind. But it lines up with God's word. It lines up with his character. And he is pressing it deep in my heart and see the impact that that could have, not on your life only, but on the life of the people around you, on the life of your spouse, on the life of your kids, on the life of your coworkers, your family members. When you step out in faith, it would never be counterproductive. He'll use it for his glory. He'll use it for your sanctification. And he'll use it to impact the world around us. And so not only do we, one truth that we can hold on to is our, our radical faith is never counterproductive, but next, that we can, our faith rests in a trustworthy God. So let's see what happens. In case you haven't read the story before, I wonder if the walls actually come down. We'll find out. Here we go. Verse 12 of chapter 6. Then Joshua rose up early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on. And they blew the trumpets continuously, and the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord. And while the trumpets blew continuously, and the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp, so they did for six days. And on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you this city. And the city and all that was in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all her with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Look at verse 20. It says, So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And so Joshua marches around with the people in the same way that God commanded him. It wasn't counterproductive. He knew the strength and the power of his God. And he walked around the city. And on the seventh time, before the walls even came down, before the people shouted, Joshua declared, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The confidence that he had in what God was going to do. The people shouted, the trumpet's blown, and miraculously, the walls of Jericho, this amazingly strong, fortified city, fell flat to the ground because of the strength of your God. And I just think that we're reminded of the trustworthiness of God in the midst when he calls us to step out in radical faith. 
Like when God calls us to step out in radical faith, he's not asking us to give our wallet to a thief, hoping that it will come back one day, right? Like hoping we'll get this back. He's not asking us to jump into the car with Ted Bundy, hoping that we survive, right? Like he's asking us to step out in great radical faith before a God who is trustworthy and who has proven himself over and over again. I mean, even think back to the life of Joshua. Joshua was around when the 10 plagues went through Egypt. He saw time and time again, God proved he is more powerful than the Egyptian gods. He was there when God parted the Red Sea and they walked through it. He was there and saw the, the waters come over and drown Pharaoh and his army. He was there when God continually for 40 years provided food and water for the people. He was there when God lowered the Jordan River so they could walk before it. He saw the strength and the power of God and it allowed him to say, I can trust this God. I can rest in this God. I can find hope and secure in what this God is doing. He's not calling me to do something counterproductive. He's trustworthy and I can believe what he has to say. And so in that moment, God used that opportunity to reveal his strength and his power. And Joshua had deep faith in who God is and what he's done. But what's even cooler than that is God did not only use that to impact the life of Joshua, but God used that to impact the life of a prostitute woman in Jericho when she saw the amazing works of God through the faith of his people. In Joshua chapter 2, Rahab takes the, um, the two spies and she puts them up on the roof. And listen what she says to them, why she's hiding, why she's hiding them from her own people. In Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, it says this. Before the men lay down, she came up to them in the roof and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shehan and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there is no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God of the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This woman, completely removed from Israel, heard about the great God of heaven and earth. She heard about the Red Sea. She heard what he did to the Amorite kings. She said, we melted away because we know that Yahweh, the Israel God, he is the one to be feared. He is the God of heaven and earth. And God used these radical situations, not just to increase the faith of the Israelites, but to even reach a lost world for his glory. How awesome is that? And so often in our lives, we get so self-consumed, don't we? We get so concerned about our own lives and what's hard and what's challenging that we often forget how God could be using the things in our lives, the things that he's calling us to, to lead people to salvation. And not only that, but he could be calling us to strengthen our faith so that they see the glory of our great God. And so I want you to reflect in your life. I want you to reflect on the things that God has done for you that you can look back on in the same way Joshua did. That you look back and see, see how God has provided for me. If you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have a relationship with him, like that's the first place that your eyes should go. Like, look what God has done for me. He saved me from the domain of darkness. And he delivered me into the marvelous light. 
and his son that I have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Like, look at the moment that you saved me. Look back to the time in your life that God drew you to himself and go, listen, you're a trustworthy God. I've seen what you did. I see the cross of Christ. Meditate on that. Believe in that as you step out in faith. But not only that, what's really cool is God has other things that he's done in our lives, doesn't he? Things that he does on a continual basis. Maybe there's moments in your life that you were struggling greatly. That life was hard. Maybe financially things were going and you didn't know what you were going to do. And God provided someone out of the woodworks to come and love on you. Maybe you found yourself at a wit's end and you walked into a local church and that church loved you and cared for you more than you could possibly imagine. Maybe there was a time in your life that, that God was calling you to step out in faith and, and change your career. And you're like, I had no idea what I was going to do. But then God provided exactly what you needed. Or maybe he protected you from a job that you thought was best for you. And you go, man, I see your faithfulness. You're trustworthy. But not only that, but often we can be just like Rahab, that we can look to how God has used things in the lives of other people and allows us to remember the trustworthiness of God. Maybe someone you knew was far away from God. You thought it was hopeless, and God brought them to, your, to himself. Remember what God did to that person? Maybe someone was in deep depression, and you saw God bring them out of it in a mighty, mighty way. Maybe things were going on in, in your family, the dysfunction between your parents or your siblings, and you saw God mend those relationships. And you can look back and say, remember the trustworthiness of our God. Remember the faithfulness of our God. Not only salvation, which should be the, the brightest one that we look at, but even how he's faithfully cared for us time and time again. Yes, he's calling me to step out and do something that is extreme. But has he always been faithful to me? Yes, he has. Has he been faithful in other ways? Yes, he has. Let me cling to that. Let me rest in that. Let me hold firm to that. Is that God calls me to leap out in radical faith for his glory, but also to impact the people and the lives around me. Moses says to the people in, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, he says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He's the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. That God's for a thousand generations, he will keep his faithfulness to you. God's faithfulness is not about to run out. God's faithfulness is not like a well that could potentially run dry. That God's faithfulness is a continual flow. It's a mighty river in your life that you can look to and that you can cling to and that you can rest in when things are so much harder than you could think. And not only is he doing it for his glory and to shape you into the image of his son, but he's doing it so that people around you can see the strength and the might and the power of your great God. Isn't that awesome? And so my question is, is how in your life has God shown up many times before? What walls in your life has God brought down? What areas in your life has God shaped you and molded you? What areas in your life have God shown up? Salvation all the way up until now, that you can look in, that you can rest in, that you can cling to. This is my God. He is trustworthy. And we can look into the lives of the other people. What are things that have happened to the people around you? Just like Rahab, we've seen God. Man, it caused us to melt away because only a great God can do something like this. So how is God calling you to reflect today as you step out and do something radical in your faith? And so the last thing we see, the truth that we can hold to, and that God never calls us to go to faith that is counterproductive, that our faith rests in a trustworthy God. We can believe him. We can bank on what he calls us to do. 
And lastly, our faith is in our God who saves. Look what we see here happening in verses 22 through 25. So the walls have come down, right? The people are about to go in and invade. And it says, but to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go to the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them out outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire, everything in it, only silver and gold and vessels of bronze of iron. They put to the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And so we see this, this mighty story of how God used his strength and his might and his power to save a prostitute by the name of Rahab. That she was in a city that didn't belong to the people of God, but God used the circumstances that he's love for the nations, that his love for people from all over the world, that he brought Rahab in. I mean, think about this story. I mean, there's people, I don't know what the population of Jericho was at the time, but it was a lot of people. And they saw the great deeds of God. They heard about it. They melted away. And all of them had the opportunity to respond in the same way that Rahab did, by putting faith in the God that they saw and heard about. But instead, what did it say the people did? In Joshua chapter chapter 6, verse 1, they went into their fortified city. They closed the doors and say, surely this God can't, penetrate these walls. And so they went into their own fortified city. They crouched down and said, these walls will protect us. And often we do the same thing in our own lives, don't we? We put a wall of our finances around us. Well, my finances will hold me. We go and we step into the relationships we have, our status, our job. These things will hold me. We place our hope in our good works, right? Like I'm a pretty good person. I haven't killed anybody. Like I'm pretty good. Let me put, go behind those walls. And we find ourselves trying to find fortified and try to be rescued from the great God of power and of might and of judgment behind these small, puny cardboard walls that God can penetrate in a moment. And they don't protect you. They expose your sinfulness. They expose your weakness. And they expose that there's nothing you can do to save yourself, man. But we hide behind them that they can take an atomic bomb, don't we? And all of our eternal security and all of our hope in the afterlife is found behind these wimp, puny walls. The same thing that people did in Jericho. But the awesome thing is, is all of us have the opportunity to respond in the same faith that Rahab did. Trusting in the God of the Bible. Trusting in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. What's so interesting to me about this story is in Hebrews chapter 11, as well as all throughout the book of Joshua, that Rahab is known as Rahab the prostitute. Time and time again, she's referred to her as that. And I always wonder, why do they call her that? Like, why is she always, why did Hebrews chapter 11 call her Rahab the prostitute? And I don't know for sure, but I think a pretty good educated guess is that God is reminding us that somebody who is deep into sin, somebody who is far away from God, and someone who might feel completely unworthy to come before the presence of God is able to to put their faith and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Because the reality is, all of us in this room are far away from God. 
The reality is that all of us are filthy, all of us are wretched, and all of us desperately need to be saved. That all of us are on the same level, right? No matter what sins you've committed, if you committed one sin, you are far away from God, you are filthy, and you are unworthy of eternal life. You are unworthy of a relationship with him. You are unworthy to know him because of the depths of your sin. We are all far, far away from God. We're all like Rahab. But the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of this story is faith in our great God saves. And that all of us have an opportunity to know and to trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior because of the great God who saves us and the great God who redeems us. How beautiful and amazing of a God. But the reality is so many of this room don't realize we're sinful. We don't realize the depths of our sin. How, Josh, could you compare me to Rahab? Yes, all of us are like Rahab. Francis Schaeffer was a Presbyterian evangelist um, who went around and and penetrate the gospel and tell people about the good news of Jesus. And someone says, you have 60 minutes on a train to share the gospel. What are you going to do? He says, I'm going to spend 50 minutes convincing them the depths of their sins. And I'm going to spend 10 minutes telling them about the good news of Jesus. Recognizing that lost people go to a savior. But the people who don't turn to Christ don't realize the depths of their sin and how filthy they are before God. But the good news about us trusting out in faith, and for some of you in this room, the radical faith that God is calling you to step out to is trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Like, that's the radical faith that he's calling you to even today. And we can step out in faith knowing that our God saves, he redeems, and he gives everlasting life to all who call on him. No matter what you've done in your life, he's able to save you from all of your sin, that Christ was punished for your sins on the cross. I was up in Clearwater around Christmas, and we were hanging out at the playground. It was a beautiful day, hanging out with my kids. And three young ladies came up to me, and they started asking me and telling me about a Bible study they were going to. I was like, great, you know, awesome, you guys are going to Bible study, like I'm a pastor, and I always know what type of religious group they're in by how they respond to that answer, right? Like, if they're, if they're Christians, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm a pastor, they're going to be, oh great, awesome. But if I say I'm a pastor, and they kind of look at me like, uh-oh, here we go, it's all right, let's talk. And so I find out that they're actually part of this cult that originated in Korea, and they're telling me about the cult, which I'd heard about before, and we're discussing it. And we're talking about how we're saved by faith. And I mentioned what the Bible says, that Paul says in Galatians, that no one is justified. No one is made right before God by works of the law. Like, we are saved by grace through faith in what Christ has done. And they're arguing with me. No, you have to do the certain sacraments. You have to do these certain things. And one of them got really frustrated with me. And she said, you're trying to tell me that if someone could live a life in sin, they could be a murderer, they could be a rapist, they could be a drug dealer, their entire life they could turn their back on God. And on their deathbed, they could trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and they would be saved for all of eternity. I said, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's the beautiful, radical, amazing grace of our God is that he's able to cover all of our sins, past, present, and future, that we can be fully forgiven of all of our sins when we trust Jesus on the cross. Christ dealt with our sins completely. All of us are far away from God on our own. All of us are filthy. All of us deserve nothing but God's holy wrath and destruction. We deserve what Jericho deserved was complete destruction destruction of our lives and cast into hell for all of eternity. But because of the loving, kindness, graceful God that we serve, he sent his son who lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead victoriously, conquering death, conquering sin, conquering the enemy, saying, you filthy, filthy people, 
come be cleansed. You people who are far off, come near. You people who, who are doomed for destruction, let me give you eternal life. And it's all made possible when we place our faith and trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. When we step out in radical faith, right? It impacts our lives that reveal God to the people around us. So man, this is a strong push for you in this room today that don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you feel unworthy or maybe you don't feel like you're even that sinful. All of us in this room are separated from God and we deserve his holy wrath. But you can be saved from your sins. You can know Jesus fully when you embrace him as your Lord and Savior. And you can know the God who saves and redeems and have a relationship with him that starts now and lasts for all of eternity. Then you guys can come on up. This is what it says in Titus chapter 2. This is, I love this, um, this verse, Titus chapter 2. Verses 11 down to verse 14, it says this. This is, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. All are able to receive the salvation alike. The people in Israel or the people who are the Gentiles like Rahab. And what does it do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself us to redeem us for all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What I love about that verse, there's so much in there, but what the gospel does is it teaches us to renounce ungodliness, to turn away from our sins, to turn away from our lives that dishonor God and are contrary to his word. But not only that, but we're able to live in lives that honor and glorify God with who that we are, that we receive the righteousness of Christ and we can live in a way that honors and glorify God in the things that we do. What's the beauty of the gospel? And so when God asks you to step out in radical faith, it's never counterproductive. He's a God that you can trust. And he's a God that is saving people all over the world. He desires to save you when you place your faith in him. And he also desires to use you in your life to impact the people around you so they see the greatness of your God. Not that they see the greatness of you, but they see the greatness of their God because he saves and redeems and gives everlasting life. And so what we're about to do today, are we on? Here we go. Um, can we just thank God for this guy and, and the work that he's done in preaching this morning? I, I know this seems a little strange, but one of the things I love about being a part of this church, and by the way, my, if we haven't met, my name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. One of the things I love about being a part of this church is that we believe that God is real, he's alive, and that he's active. And that when the people of God gather, he, he, he does things to meet us in a very specific and personal way. And so there was a distinct sense while Josh was preaching that we wanted to be obedient towards in just providing a little bit of things to think about before Josh leads us into, into communion. And, um, and that is because I, I couldn't deny several times while Josh was preaching this recurring thought that th- this message was applying for some because you are having a difficult time accessing faith. You are having a difficult time uh, 
because you are holding on to resentment. You are holding on to bitterness. You woke up this morning with this person in your mind. They were in your mind as you were driving over the service this morning. They have come in and out of your mind during the service this morning. And you'll know it's you because this, whatever you perceive is an offense or what they've done to you is it's causing you to withdraw from them. So rather than pressing into them in the relationship, you're withdrawing from them. Rather than living at peace before God, you're angry with them. Rather than living and applying just the principle of forgiveness in Scripture, you are prosecuting them. They're on the witness stand, in your mind. It's happening all the time. And you haven't been completely perceptive to the place that your heart has gone to because there has been this growing resentment. There's been this growing bitterness. And the reason why that's important is because faith is never more radical than when it is applied to forgiveness. Mm-hmm. You know, Josh told that incredible story about, about Jim Elliot. Elliot, thank you. Um, Jim Elliott's wife, the postscript of that story is Jim Elliott's wife actually went back to the tribe that killed her husband and lived among them and served them and loved them and saw them converted and saw the people that killed her husband converted and then began traveling the world with the story of forgiveness, taking the people that had killed her husband and allowing them to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and the transformational effect. So that, there, there's a sense where her story illustrates, the postscript of that story punctuates radical forgiveness, radical faith. And so I, I just didn't want us to immediately move toward communion without taking the opportunity to reflect upon an area where this may apply to your life in a most profound way, in a way that's keeping you from experiencing the goodness of God because that spouse, that child, that person at work, that whoever that was that came into your mind is, is as you pray, Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, you're not practicing that. And you're not completely aware of that. And God wants you to repent of that so that you might move towards a radical faith toward him and that you might come back to a place where you can thoroughly enjoy his goodness and his grace without that hanging suspended over your faith and over your life for the the next months to come. So... I want to pray with you, and then I'm going to turn it back over to Josh, and he's going to lead us into communion in light of that. So would you join me in praying? Heavenly Father, there is not one among us who can't identify with this category. Lord, there's not one among us who has not held on to bitterness or resentment. And yet, Lord, we realize as we turn from ourselves and look to you that There's a reality that we see when we see Christ hanging suspended upon the cross. That though we were yet sinners, we were yet enemies, you died for us. You came after us, you pursued us, you loved us despite the fact that we rejected you. And Lord, you forgave us. 
despite the fact that we didn't want to have anything to do with you. And so, Lord, what we want to do this morning is we want to live outside of the power of unforgiveness. Lord, we want to forgive even as you have forgiven us, regardless of what that other person does. Lord, regardless of whether they change at all, regardless of even if they get worse, Lord, we don't want to live held hostage to these feelings that are not glorifying you, are separating us from you, and are dragging us down spiritually. Lord, we want to apply radical faith right now by repenting of our sins. We want to apply radical faith right now by turning toward you and saying, Help our unbelief. And Lord, we want to do this recognizing that you delight because you're our Father. You delight in answering these prayers and in rushing towards us with the grace that we need and fresh faith to do what you have called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you for your willingness to, to be sensitive to what the Lord was doing and, and having you come up here. Um, I believe God is working, and I believe that God, that was a word specifically for multiple people in this room. And so our greatest desire is, is not to ignore. Uh, our greatest desire is to come to Jesus. And like Dave mentioned when he was up here, I think the most radical faith that we can do that impacts our lives and reveals Christ to other people is to offer forgiveness to people who don't deserve it. And so what we're going to do in just a moment is we're going to take of the Lord's Supper. Um, and as the band plays, the room is going to move around. And we ask that if you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're a child of God, that you would come and, and dip the bread. I mean, take the bread and dip it in the juice. The bread representing the body of Christ that was broken for you. The juice representing the blood of Christ that was shed for you. But the Bible also tells us that we should examine our hearts before we take of the Lord's Supper. And one of the best ways that we can examine our hearts is to examine what we have done before God. What sins do we need to repent of? What grudges are we holding? In what ways maybe have we offended other people that we need to go to them and step out in radical faith to ask for forgiveness? And so there's no rush here to take of the supper. I, I pray that God would move and penetrate in your hearts even as you sit there today. And we have deacons who are all over the room at each of the stations. And I would encourage the people that, that God spoke to you directly as Dave came up here, or even throughout the message, that you would go to their deacons and allow them to pray for you. We're not trying to minimize how hard it is to offer forgiveness for people. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. And some of you are like, I don't think I can do that. You might not be able to, but the Holy Spirit can work within you through the life, the death, and the resurrection to do it. So go to the people around the room. Tell them what's going on. Allow them to pray with you, to hold you up, and to cry out for the strength and the power of our God together as believers for his glory, for your sanctification, and for the world to see the great and awesome God that we serve. Let's pray. Lord, we so thankful for today, so thankful for the, the words of, that you've spoke to Joshua and just the story that we see that we're called to step out in radical faith, even though it doesn't even make sense a lot of times, even though it seems counterproductive, but we can trust that you are a God that is worthy, that you're a faithful God, that you're consistent. And we can look back in times and times in our lives, how faithful that you've been. And you're a God that saves souls. And that your God doesn't on your own means, but you often use your people to do it, which is an honor and a privilege that is. 
Thank you for the story of Rahab. Thank you for telling us that someone who was so far off from God can be saved from her sins. And all of us are so far off from God on our own. And we all need to be saved from our sins. Be with the person in this room even now who don't, doesn't want to offer that forgiveness and just can't wait to get out of this room so they can ignore it. I pray, Lord, that you would be relentless in their life. I pray that you would penetrate it and I pray that you would move in a mighty, mighty way and they would see the great forgiveness of what Christ has towards them and that you would give them the strength and the heart and the desire to offer forgiveness and to start that process. We need you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness and your grace and we love you. And it's in the mighty, powerful, saving, forgiving, gracious, compassionate name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.